Welcome back. This is the story of the Old Testament. This is for week 20 for the week of May 14th through 20th. This week we are walking through Deuteronomy chapter 5 through chapter 13 and uh, Psalms 96 verse 100. We are in the midst of the book of Deuteronomy where we have Moses instructing the people of God right before they cross over the Jordan. One last sermon for Moses to instruct and pour his heart and his life into the people of Israel um, as he is there instructing them as a loving father of sorts who's raised these people, who's seen these people, who has seen their highs and their lows, and he loves them. He loves them very much because he's a shepherd. He's a pastor um, of sorts who uh, cares for the flock of God. Um, that has been entrusted to him. And so here he is. He begins in chapter five here where we are today um, by going through the Ten Commandments and then uh, the following chapters, uh, calling Israel to faithfulness and trust and obedience to the Lord their God, uh, to rest in him, to trust in him, uh, to also be reminded that it's not because of their righteousness or because they're better that they are being blessed, but to be reminded that it's only because of the Lord's kindness to them. They have nothing to boast in as to why they are uh, blessed. It is only because of the Lord's kindness. And so uh, we have some very famous words here. Actually, this is the section of Scripture uh, that uh, Jesus would quote in his uh, combat with the devil in the wilderness in uh, Matthew chapter 4. Um, he would quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And so the Lord here is warning them, and Moses warning them against idolatry, against worshiping other gods, but also against worshiping the true God the wrong way. And so we can see all of these things happening here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses, or chapters 5 through, through 13. So this week, we, let's begin by uh, looking at something from Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, because eventually the Lord excuse me, uh, tells, uh, we, or we see Moses saying this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So he calls them to teach these things to their children. Later on, he tells them that whenever your children come and they ask you, uh, what do these things mean? You are to tell them about your slavery in Egypt and how the Lord saved us. So <clears throat> the first thing I want to read here is from Chad Bird. This is a... Uh, an article called Parents, We All Choose Our Child's Religion. And so as we think about this, think about the fact that we are called to instruct our children in uh, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And uh, think about what that means as we, as we think about this passage of Scripture in this article. Chad Bird writes this, Being a father or mother is a lot like being a priest. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Christian, or one of the religious nuns. Whatever faith, or the lack thereof, parents affirm they spend about 18 years conducting a profoundly influential worship service in the lives of their children. 
Parenting is basically the liturgy of child rearing. Through tens of thousands of ordinarily ordinary daily interactions, moms and dads orient young hearts toward a vision of what James K. A. Smith calls the good life. Parents show their children what to love, what to desire, what matters most. This usually happens unconsciously. By example, practice, habit, and speech, parents are saying to their children, this is the good life, the fulfilling life, the life worth living. In other words, parents teach their children what or who to love, to trust in, to rely upon, to find fulfillment in life. That who or what is their big G or little g, God. The question is not, should you choose your child's religion? Rather, it's this, which religion are you choosing for your child? It may be one of the traditional faiths, or it may be plastic religions such as the next big thing or I faith. In the religion of the next big thing, the sacraments are degrees, promotions, acquisitions, whatever whatever moves one along toward what has been determined to be the good life. If I get into this university, I'll be fi- I'll finally be happy. If I make this much money, I'll matter. If I marry this person, I'll find contentment. If I buy this house, I'll be important. If the next big thing in my life happens, I'll be I'll I'm I'll be able to justify my existence. I'll be resurrected from a life of boredom and discontent. I'll mean something. I'll be somebody. That's what I love, so that's what I'll pursue with my whole heart. This is the stuff of religion. It just goes by a different name. Perhaps it's the religion of I faith. In this faith, what matters is saying something new, believing something new, breaking religious barriers, rewriting creeds, moving beyond the dead doctrines of dead people expressed in their dead rituals. In I faith, the versions are constantly being updated, so you have to constantly be adapting. Whatever was cutting edge yesterday is dull today. Whatever is new is better. If something is said in a way no one has said it before, it's probably true. The good life in I faith is found in being different, special, unique from others. Whatever faith or cocktails of faith parents embrace, we're teaching our children to trust that they will be fulfilled, find purpose and meaning in something or someone. We are directing the compass of their hearts towards certain loves. We, like parental priests, are conducting the liturgy of child rearing. So, first of all, let's stop pretending that we'll wait for our child to grow up so they can choose their religion. Parents always choose their children's religion, without exception. It's just that, in some cases, this religion operates under a different name. It's the vision of the good life, the object of our loves, that thing that will justify our existence. Secondly, to speak directly to Christian parents, let's cultivate an awareness of how we, as parental priests, are conducting the daily, heart-shaping, love-directing liturgy in our homes. If we take our kids to church on Sunday, then spend the other six and a half days around the altar of materialism and memorizing the chief parts of the catechism of I faith, we don't have to be a prophet to foretell what their vision of the good life will be. Take up your cross and follow me will be replaced in your children's lives by take up your desires and pursue them. I realize we're going to fail often at this. I certainly have. But even in our failures, there is the opportunity for liturgical awareness. Children learn about confession and absolution most vividly when their parents admit they've messed up, they need forgiveness, that they live too by grace alone. They see in our home liturgy that forgiveness defines the good life, not punishment or revenge or self-justification. In many cases, the child becomes the priest, forgiving moms and dads as my own son and daughter have forgiven me. Every act of parenting is a religious act. 
Every decision we make forms a tiny part of liturgy we are conducting in the 18-year-old shaping of our children's loves, trusts, and vision of the good life. As important as Sunday morning is, the life-shaping liturgy doesn't end when we walk out the church doors. It's only getting started. So there we have the, the, the fact that as Israel was called to do, so are we to uh, instruct our children. And really, we're choosing their religion to a large degree, aren't we? Um, of course, they have to receive it by faith themselves. But we're instructing them and pointing to them and exampling to them what the good life is all about and who we should trust. But after, after uh, moving on from that, then in chapter 7, uh, you see here that the Lord reminds Israel of their uniqueness and the fact that they have been chosen because of God's love. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This brings up the doctrine of what we call election. Now, election is a word we use in our political system, right? Whenever we elect somebody, we choose them. Now, we do that. Um, we, we elect people by vote, by a, by a vote of people. And by that vote, whoever gets the most votes in our political system is the person who is elected, the person who is chosen uh, to that position. Well, similarly, that's what the Lord is talking about here. Whenever he talks about the fact that you were chosen, the Lord chose you, Israel, uh, as a nation, right? They were chosen as a people. And he says, you were chosen not because of your goodness or because of uh, your size, but because the Lord loves you and the Lord is faithful to the oath that he swore to your fathers. So this is an article now that I want to read about called God's Electing Grace. It's by Ian Duguid. Um, And let's think about this idea that if we are God's people, we have been chosen. It's a very humbling thing. Let's think about it together. Ian Duguid writes this, The doctrine of election is a difficult one for many people. They struggle with the justice of the idea that God chooses some for salvation and passes over others. Some people, therefore, have argued that it is a matter of God's foreknowledge. God knows in advance which people are going to choose him, and therefore he responds by choosing them. The Bible, however, is clear. God's love for his chosen people existed long before their birth, all the way back to the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4-5 God does not love us because he foresaw we would love him. Rather, we love God because he loved us from the first. Yet, as we pointed out earlier, even though God's election is sovereign, it is not arbitrary or unjust. It is not as if Esau desperately wanted to be a chosen son, and God harshly turned him away, not allowing him a place among his chosen people. No, Esau has twice turned his back on his spiritual birthright. First, he sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of lentil soup. Now he compromised the fundamental goal of God's election, the creation of a separate, holy people for God. Under the circumstances, Esau could have no complaints about being passed over. We should also notice, however, that Jacob is not chosen because, in contrast to Esau, he is such a wonderful person. Jacob shows himself to be a scheming, conniving, calculating little rat, especially during the first part of his life. 
Nonetheless, because God's choice rests upon him out of his sovereign mercy, God is going to work on Jacob, reshaping him, purifying him into a person he can use. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserves God's grace in his life, but God's sovereign mercy rests upon Jacob for his blessing, and so his grace begins the transforming work in his heart. So it is also for us. Our election and our salvation are entirely of grace. God did not choose you because you were smarter or or better or smarter or more beautiful or holier than everyone else. God did not choose you because he foresaw that you would exercise faith while others wouldn't. God chose us while we were still filthy sinners because of his electing grace. Even with his transforming power at work in our hearts, though, the best of saints make only small beginnings on the path of holy living. We never outgrow our need for grace while we live on earth. But God's sovereign choice on salvation is not arbitrary. Those passed over by God have no cause for complaint. Their condemnation is thoroughly deserved. Even though we plead with them with tears to abandon their self-destructive course and find salvation in Jesus Christ, they will have none of it. The whole idea is foolishness to them. Those whom God chooses, he then begins to reshape into a people for his pleasure. As Ephesians 1.4 puts it, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. The result is that those chosen have no cause for arrogance. Their justification is undeserved by them. It is merited only by the righteousness of Christ that is credited to their account, and it is worked on them by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. All is of God so that God may receive all the glory. That truth should give us boldness in our sharing of the gospel. We may freely call all who come to Jesus and be saved. The invitation to the party is open to all. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, your sins too can be paid for by the death of Jesus on the cross. No one is too guilty or too defiled to come. You too can receive Christ's righteousness credited to your account. You too can participate in the feast that God has prepared for all who are his people on the final day. It's a genuine offer, and we pray fervently and intently that many people will respond to it in faith. But we trust the outcome of our evangelism to the care of a good God, who chose a people who would be his before the foundation of the world. That too is a comforting thought given the imperfection of so much of our gospel witness. It is God who determines the outcome of our speaking for him, not the quality of our speech. It is God's choice whether our words fall on the ears of an Esau, to whom they are all nonsense, or on the ears of a Jacob, for whom the road to faith may be long and hard, but will eventually bring him to glory. It is God's choice whether our words fall on the ears of an Abraham, who is ready now to hear and trust and believe. We therefore invite all, to come to Christ, of receiving the living water from him, confident that all those whom the Lord our God is calling to himself will hear his voice and will come. To him indeed be all the glory. This truth should also give us great joy on the midst of our manifold sins and failures. Do you know yourself to be a sinner in God's sight? Are there areas of your life where you continue to fail God over and over again? If so, the bad news is that you are not, is that you are normal. But the good news is that if God has laid hold of you by his electing grace, he will sustain you by that grace through every step of your earthly journey. He will use even that sin which you find so difficult to combat as a means of driving you back to the cross. And one day, at the end of all things, you too will be purified completely by his grace and will stand before him without fault or blemish. What a wonderful, heartwarming, comforting doctrine the doctrine of election is. So there we have Israel reminded 
And they will be reminded again, chapter 9 again, of uh, the fact that God chose them, but it's not anything to be arrogant about. It's only because of, of God's grace. Well, next I want to talk about in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, and this is, I believe, yes, the last article that I've got here. Because remember, Jesus quotes uh, from this this portion of God's word uh, in his temptation against uh, the against Satan in the wilderness. And uh, so this is an article by Chad Bird called The Temptation of Jesus. The Jordan River, this is Chad Bird writing, the Jordan River water slowly trickled off our Lord's wet head. Behind him, the famous Jordan River snaked its way along. Before him, the ancient serpent lay in wait. Still drenched with baptismal water, Jesus marched into the desert of temptation. Heaven and hell were about to exchange blows, and in this celestial realm, you could have heard a pin drop. You are tempted, tempted to view the fight as a spectator, to whoop and cheer for your big brother who's about to blacken the eye of the bully from Hades, but you are not a fan in the stands. No, you are in Christ. In Jesus, all of you go toe-to-toe with the heavyweight champion of hell. When this one man enters the ring with the tempter, all of you step in with him. Just as in Adam all humanity fell through temptation into sin and death, so in Christ all humanity will rise through obedience into righteousness and life. You are not in the audience. You are in the desert, for you are in Christ. When Jesus was baptized, his father's voice fell from heaven, proclaiming, You are my beloved son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But there in the wilderness it did not seem so, did it? After fasting forty days and forty nights, Jesus became hungry. You are my beloved son, the father had said. Well, if you love him so much, why are you allowing him to suffer hunger? With whom I am well pleased, the father had affirmed. Pray, tell me, if you are so pleased with him, why have you not given him a scrap of food to alleviate the wretching emptiness of his stomach? Such are the doubts devised by the devil. Satan, too, had heard the father's sermon at the baptism of this man. He watched him fast. He saw him hunger. So he devised a plan of attack. So the tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Do you hear what is suggested? The devil is saying, if it is true what that voice from the cloud said, then why has he evidently abandoned you to die of starvation? Why is he depriving you of the basic necessities of life? So you see, Satan, hungry for victory, has swung his fist at the empty belly of our Lord. But no more had the swing begun before it was blocked, not by human strength, not by willpower, not by argumentation, but by what? solely by the word of God. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the word that had proceeded from the mouth of God was, You are my son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Do you see? The temptation was not simply to turn rocks into food. Satan lured Jesus to turn from the trustworthy words of his father to the fickle feelings of the human heart. But instead of turning stones into bread, Christ stuffed the stone of his father's word into the devil's open, tempting mouth. That same satanic mouth has dropped such doubting thoughts into your suffering heart, hasn't it? At your baptism, too, the father said, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But does it always seem so? When the bills pile up, have you wondered what use is the father's rich grace if you haven't money to pay what you owe? If you are so loved by him, why did he allow you to be injured? 
to become ill, to be widowed or divorced, to spend hour upon hour in pain or misery or heartache or loneliness. If God is God, if God is good, why is my life so bad? So goes the temptation to despair. But as it was with Jesus, so it is with you. Satan is luring you to turn from the trustworthy words of your father to the fickle feelings of your human heart. Do not trust yourself. Trust your father. If he sent his own beloved son to the cross, do not pretend that he will spare you crosses, sufferings, and pains. But know and believe that behind these masks of suffering is the smiling face of your beloved father. The Lord disciplines those he loves. In love, he is bringing you cross by cross, suffering by suffering, into conformity with his beloved Son, and finally to the glory of the resurrection. Having failed in his initial assault, Satan circled his opponent, planning his next attack. This time he went for the jugular. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What is the devil up to trying to break our Lord's neck? No, he is far more sinister than that. He is saying, you claim then that you are the beloved son of God in whom God is well pleased. If that is so, if your father loves you so much and you are so well pleasing to him, then I suppose he will do anything to protect you. Very well, then throw yourself down from the temple. Why, he has even said he will protect you with his angels. You rely on his word. Well then, take him at his word and fly, O wingless son of God. But as the devil tried to wrench the sword of the spirit from the Lord's strong grasps, he only sliced open his hand on the razor-sharp blade. Yes, the psalm says, he will give his angels charge concerning you, but the deceiver omitted the words that follow, in all your ways. Never had the Father commanded Jesus to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. Thus, to do so would be to walk in a way outside God's word and command. So Jesus responds, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not test his anger by abandoning his straight word to walk in the way of man's twisted thinking. As Dr. Luther's notes, as Dr. Luther notes, this second temptation, the temptation to abandon the Lord's clear word is the greatest. With this temptation, the devil has shattered the outward unity of the church into thousands of sectarian shards. Men and women, walking not in the clear way of God's word, but in their own muddled emotions and opinions, have jumped from the tr pinnacle of truth and struck their feet upon the stone of heresy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Rather, inscribe the words of God into your heart that you may not subscribe to the lies of the tempter's mouth. Having now been defeated in the first two rounds with our Lord, Satan stepped forward for one final swing. In the first temptation, the devil held adversity and pain in the face of Jesus. Here he holds prosperity and delight before him. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The devil knew that Jesus knew what sufferings awaited him. So he says, you who claim to be God's son are not worthy of this miserable life. See the riches, view the honor, covet the glory I would bestow upon you. Oh, yes, all and more I will give, if only you will get on your knees before me. But our Lord came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for you. And if he came not to be served, 
Certainly he came not to pursue wealth, fame, and glory. He came to fear, love, and trust in God above all things, and in so doing, to fulfill the law for you. So he said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do you see what our Lord has done in his conquest of Satan with all his temptations? He has utterly reversed the fall of the first man. But that is not all. He has not only reversed Adam's fall, he has brought forward a new humanity, with himself being a new Adam who bears in his own body the source of all true and lasting life. What you could not do, Christ has done for you. The tempter whom you could never defeat on your own, Christ has defeated. The new genesis which you could never create, Jesus has created for you. In the plush Garden of Eden, the first Adam was defeated by the ancient serpent. But in the wasteland of the Judean wilderness, Jesus fought off the temptations of the evil one. Every fiery arrow shot from Satan's bow was doused in the water of the word. Heaven and hell stood toe to toe, and hell was left lying in the dust, that you, O man of dust, might stand toe to toe with God and be embraced by him as a beloved child. The Lord Jesus fought and won this battle for you. In his victory over the devil is your victory as well. For all that Christ accomplished has been reckoned to you as your very own. When you fall prey to the temptations of Satan, flee to the one in whom Satan has already been defeated. Those who are in Christ Jesus cannot be harmed by the enticements of, the, of evil. As in Adam you died to sin, in sin, so in the obedient Christ you live. Repent and return to him. Leave the old Adam with his death and come to the new Adam with all his life. He will receive and embrace you as his very own. He who is tempted for you is never tempted to turn you away who turned back to him. His back, his baptism is your baptism. His conquering of sin is your conquering of sin. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension are all yours. What belongs to the head belongs to the body, and you are the body of Christ, living members of that man who is also God, the one in whom you have the life of the Father. Lead us not into temptation, our Father, but lead us into the one who conquered the tempter for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And he conquered the devil, utilizing these words from Deuteronomy, the very words that we're reading this week. What a powerful book it is then, and we, we do well to study it. If our Lord Jesus Christ uh, thought this portion of God's Word so valuable, important, and clear, clear um, to use it in defeating the devil, so should we, right? Well, enjoy the rest of reading uh, the, the Deuteronomy this week. Uh, next week, we have uh, week 21, May 21 through 27. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14 through 22 should be a good one. Uh, join us next week. Take care and God bless.